John 16, verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that's uh, so vital at this point in the church calendar is to move from learning about Christ's life, learning about how God saved his people through Jesus. Jesus, when he was given his name, it said he will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say for he will make possible their salvation. but rather that he will save his people from their sins and that salvation being made present at the cross after which he raised from the dead, triumphing over death, vindicating both by the Father's uh, power and the Holy Spirit's power, vindicating his authority as Son of God to not only atone for sins, but also to resurrect all at the end of the ages. He gives the Spirit, which we celebrated last week at Pentecost, and that giving of the Spirit begins to create an understanding of what it means to worship the one true God. We're gonna hear, you're going to hear some things today that sound completely harsh, because you have imbibed subtly, maybe even not intentionally yourself, you have been imbibing a atmosphere of toleration, all religions being the same, all religions having no dis- distinction among them. And, and you're going to hear some things that maybe startle you uh, and perhaps you've never thought about before, but I would just challenge you that that the atmosphere of toleration in our society is so anti-Christ, it's so anti-God, that you maybe have never even given some thought to the nature of the Christian view of God versus all other views of God. And we're going we're gonna to look at how that is not a uh, trivial idea. As Christians, we have been invited into this community, and should we deny the doctrine of the Trinity, we really are denying the gospel. We're, of course, denying God who he is. We're denying the deity of the Son, but we're also denying our future. And by future, I do not simply mean eternity in heaven, although that would be great. How many of you would love to have heaven here completely? I myself would, if you've ever seen popular notions of heaven, it's usually air-conditioned quite well. Um, One of my favorite popular descriptions of heaven, have you ever seen the Philadelphia cream cheese commercials with the clouds are flowy and the gates are gold? It's wonderful. Um, It doesn't look like the heavenly Jerusalem, but essentially the point being, not only do we get 
salvation from hell. Not only are we not going to face the wrath of God for eternity, but we are also going to get to know God for all eternity. And let me just say this, heaven would be no grace or gift at all should God not be present in heaven. Heaven, escape from death, escape from torment, would be nothing. That's not the, the biblical view of who God is, who we've been made as image bearers. We were made to have communion with him. Probably one of the most significant uh, theological developments in my own life was when I began to interact with a series of believers who, who, who had a central teaching, which is you were made to encounter God. And that encountering is not something that is extra to the gospel. It's the point of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I'm the foremost, as Paul is, as I'm referring to Paul here. You're the foremost of sinners. Christ has come to save you. He's able to save. But it's not just salvation from hell. It's salvation unto or salvation to know God. It's salvation to have communion with God. And so here at Trinity Sunday, the the week after Pentecost, the final moment where it's crystal clear that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, we then begin to see through these readings that that are on our schedule of readings what it is we've been invited into. It's not just washing from sins. It's not just eternity in a blessed state rather than a cursed state. It's also eternity with knowing the eternal one. And that eternal life which we have is really knowing Christ and the one who sent him, as Christ himself testified. Jesus did not say eternal life is dying and going to heaven. Jesus said eternal life is knowing Christ. And for, the, for us to hear that, that means eternal life has broken into now. You, if you have come to know Christ, you have already been encountered by the eternal one. And he's beginning to create an, a relationship in which you now live in him and he in you. That's really the view of what it means to look at God as the triune God. And we're going to see how this actually informs everything that should be creating a culture of life in which we commune with the divine. Uh, we're going to get to at the end, Paul says that we have been made, or sorry, excuse me, First Peter says that we have been made partakers in the divine nature. And if you hear that with any sort of reality going on in your heart or head, that should scare you. Partakers in the divine nature. What is this? This is, a, this is an amazing grace gift. And should we truly begin to encounter that, we must know who is this one that we have been uh, invited to partake with, to commune with. This is really the purpose of Christ's mission. It's not simply to provide an atonement, but also to make a way of access by which we can know God through Christ. So, that being said, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I'm going to discuss a few heresies. If you haven't heard that word in a while, I'm sorry for you. You should hear that word every once in a while. We're going to discuss some heresies, and the reason why we're going to discuss them isn't really to um, stare at the darkness. Um, I think it was Nietzsche who said, if you stare into the void, at some point the void begins to stare back. Um, I I don't think you should go searching for weird doctrines, especially if you're a young Christian. I don't recommend just clicking on all the different religions on Wikipedia and just reading all about Your head will... um, be quite confused after just a while. I mean, there are some weird, weird ideas. We're going to look at some non-Trinitarian heresies, that is, heresies which deny the Trinity. There are a classification of heresies that deny Christ's divinity, which are not necessarily uh, Trinitarian, but in a sense they are. And most of these heresies don't concern the deity of Christ, but rather simply the nature of who God is. And they're important to know so that you do not begin to subtly uh, slip into them. And they're also important to know because it will shape what you're looking for in your life, in your walk with God. We're going to look at Christ's view of the disciples in our reading in John. I'm absolutely amazed over and over again at Christ's trust of his grace operating in these disciples. And really this begins to shape how we view our own weakness as people who are following after God with everything that we have, there are times where we make mistakes, where we make wrong turns on our walk with the Lord, where we engage in sin or permit sin in our life. And really, what I'm trying to get to at this point through this reading, being shaped by the triune 
redemptive history here, Jesus operating and sending the Spirit, is what does Jesus think about us as, as believers? Not rather what we should think of ourselves. Really, I, I, I'm not truly interested in my own self-esteem. I want to know what the Father thinks about me. I want to know what the Son thinks he's doing in my life. And so I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus' demonstration of the Spirit of God being given to the disciples is a great understanding of how Christ views those who are still weak and immature. And so from there, we're going to look at Christ's mediation. Christ's mediation means his role in which he actively plays in us knowing God. You do not know God the Father except through God the Son. And Jesus Christ plainly taught about that, which is an important idea to have in our minds as we look at some of these Trinitarian heresies. Before we get to the heresies, we're gonna, I'm going to give a simple definition. So if you've been hearing the word Trinity all morning and you don't know what we're talking about, that's quite all right. We're going we're gonna to help you get there. Uh, throughout the scriptures, the doctrine of the triune nature of God is clearly seen. Very first two verses... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the and the earth. Verse two, and the earth was formless and or sorry, the earth was formless and void. And then verse two, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the very first few verses of the scripture, we see this idea that there is God and there is the spirit of God. Who, as the scripture goes on, we will begin to see that this spirit of God is also God Himself. And though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it's a thoroughly biblical idea. I hear so many young Christians or people who are beginning to encounter Christianity and think about it, they hear this word Trinity, and then they, they get told by someone, usually a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and then they begin to doubt the Christian understanding of who God is. Well, neither is you know Volkswagen, but I still drive one. Volkswagen's not in the Bible, but I use it. You know, and, and actually, uh, personal savior really isn't in the Bible, but we're all okay with that. Um, I mean, there is the, Jesus Christ surely is the savior, but the, the abstract notion of my personal savior, apart from what Christ has been doing in calling the disciples, that notion is clearly not biblical. So just because a term is not in the scriptures doesn't mean that we can't u- use it. it. It it doesn't at all say that we cannot use this word. Uh, consubstantial is not in the New Testament either, but we're okay with that. Um, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. That's fine. So consubstantial is is in these cre- so. Okay, so there, there was a time at which there was a debate about this. Some, some new teachers um, in the third and fourth centuries had begun to promote a false view of the Trinity. The Trinity was not ever thoroughly espoused at the beginning of the church's history. However, the church maintained the doctrine of the Trinity. And so when you hear people say, well, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't show up until the fourth century, and that does not mean that Christians in the first three centuries did not believe in the Trinity. It simply means that no one had to fight that hard so that it made it into the historical record. There's no record of my pastoral talks with you, but you've believed some strange things, and I, by the grace of God, am hoping to call you, you know. So just because the error doesn't make it on the history line until the fourth century doesn't mean that it's a new idea that the Christians never encountered or debated or talked about. Yes, Origen's the first one to use that me- uh, measure triune, but as you see through, you, uh, through the readings of Scripture, the triune nature of God is everywhere. It's everywhere. And in fact, almost all of Paul's uh, Im- indicatives or the, f- the parts of Paul's letters which say this is what, you know, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and then a few verses later, he, therefore he sent the Spirit. I mean, over and over again, especially in the writings of Paul, you see these Trinitarian views of what it is that God has done through sending Jesus Christ. The Father desired to redeem those who he was calling, so he sent the Son to make an atonement for them, and because of that atonement, they have been sanctified for all time uh, and that sanctification is now created a place for the spirit in which uh, for the spirit to dwell. This is really the central. That's really my central point today: is that our redemption is triune. So at some point there was some heretics or people who would later be called heretics or judged as heretics who began to teach things that were contrary to the Trinity, such as Jesus 
Christ, being a man, was not really the Son of God, or the Son of God is not really God himself, but rather is lesser than God. Things like this. And at some point, uh, there was a, a creed written which is attributed to an early church father named Athanasius. Uh, and Athanasius's creed is quite long, and that's why on the screen there's some dots before and after. I'm going to just read a part of this. It's actually a great document. I've found wonderful joy and, and the presence of God in reading both the Athanasian Creed and the symbol of Chalcedon, two creeds which are very important, although the Athanasian Creed is not an ecumenical creed, um, two creeds which are very important for us to understand as we begin to learn about Christ and the scriptures. The Athanasian Creed uh, concisely defines the view, the Christian view of God as a triune view. The Athanasian Creed says that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. Let me just explain that because that's quite uh, it's quite muddled if you don't know what the terms mean. Uh, neither dividing the per, uh, neither confounding the persons means that we do not in any way say that the Father is the Son, or the Son is the Spirit, or the Spirit is the Father. Now Paul does describe the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of the Father, but he and the Spirit of Christ, but he does not describe the Holy Spirit as identical to the Father or identical to the Son. And uh, so that's just an important understanding. And then the next idea is dividing the essence. By describing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do not say that there are three gods. This is not tri-theism. But rather there is one God who subsists or exists in person as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a a wonderful and glorious doctrine and truly uh, a great way to to meditate and be filled with awe. I have probably the greatest devotional times when I'm encountering the triune being, his history of redeeming men in the New Testament. Of course, he's there in the Old Testament. The idea is not new in the New Testament by any means, but it is clearly espoused in the New Testament. The creed goes on to say, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. This is not a Pentecostal church. (laughs) I'm just, that's a joke. <clears throat> here's a tricky word in English. Um, some people, when they hear the word Godhead, they think of like there's this Godhead and then there's this God body. And um, I, just bear with me. I, I know that sounds silly. Many people actually are slightly confused because of the way that the English spelling has come down. When Godhead does not mean God seafull, like my head, like encephalitis. Like it's, it's not um, like there's, God the Father and then God the Son and the Spirit are subjected to this Godhead. It means Godhood or Godness or Godity, uh, which are ridiculous ways to say Godhead. It means that the Godhood of the Father or the fact that the Father is God is not confusing. So it says, but the Godhead of the Father, the Godhead of the Son, the Godhead of the Holy Spirit is all one. That is to say that God the Father is not a separate God from God the Son. They're not separate. They are different in person, but they are essentially one in essence, or they are unified in essence. And this doctrine, as we begin to unpack it, is very difficult to speak of without introducing error. Nevertheless, uh, we cannot understand this doctrine completely. The truth of who God is is far greater than you or I could ever understand. Everything that we've ever known or seen has always had a cause that caused it to come into being. We're discussing one who is his own cause. He's his own reason for existence. It's beyond the limits usually of what we can talk about in English. Nevertheless, though we cannot understand the doctrine of the Trinity fully in all of its manifestations and implications, we can know it accurately. So whenever someone comes to you and says, "Well, I don't I deny the Trinity. It's not in the New Testament. I don't, you know, I don't really believe that. I think that, you know, Jesus said the Father is greater than I." Yes, he did say that. And he's talking about roles, not essence. He's talking about mission, not per, uh, not being. And and so therefore we we can know the doctrine of the Trinity accurately and truly. It is true knowledge, though it is uncom- incomplete. Um, if you just to put it in a human relationship or a human terms, I only went to calculus one, and it was kind of like baby calculus, where the teacher really helped you a lot with the homework. 
It was a computer science school that was mostly focused on software, not on engineering. So they made us take calculus, but it was kind of like a softball calculus, you know? Not, uh, not because women play softball, but rather because of a light, you know, softball is a throw. Not this, not this, the underhand pitch. Don't, if you want to see real softball, talk to my, my sister Carla. She's, I would not, I would not try to hit off of Carla's pitches. The point being that it's not a man-woman thing, not baseball, softball. It's that we're talking about casual softball here. So many, so many misogynists exist. You've got to be careful. Somebody might think you are one. So it's, it's softball calculus, right? That, that's what I took. My wife majored in mathematics for her bachelor's degree. And I don't even know what she knows. Like, I don't even know the ideas. Like, I understand some terms in mathematics, but I don't even know the ideas. Like, she'll tell me the name of the class, and I'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about at all. But that doesn't mean I don't know algebra, right? I, I know algebra, but I don't know all of mathematics. It's an exhaustible, inexhaustible uh, study of, of science. But, but that doesn't mean that I can't you know, do mathematics. I can't do arithmetic. I can't do geometry. I may not know the furthest reaches of the greatest parts of math that you could study today, but I do know things accurately on the lower levels. This is how we understand God. We do not understand God in his essence and his being. We cannot know it perfectly, but we can know it accurately and truly. And so the first and, uh, the first and most subtle doctrine that we, I want to examine as being a heretical doctrine is that Christianity is one of the many monotheistic religions. This is probably a doctrine that you subtly believe, but I want to just submit to you that it is a heresy to say that both the Jews, the, the Muslims, and uh, other, I believe the Sikhs are also monotheistic. I'm not too sure. Um, I don't remember much from that day on Wikipedia. Um, but it, it, is, it is heretical to say that Christianity is a monotheistic religion and mean that it's on the same footing as Judaism and Islam. Now, what I would say is that what is now called Judaism today is nothing like the faith of the patriarchs. Don't call the Jewish Defense League. They'll, they'll be very angry that I'm saying this. Because there is one God, and all the other gods that would be gods are no gods at all. That's what Paul says concerning the idols. What, what modern Jews believe to be God, they understand Yahweh as one, and there is no understanding of him as Father, Son, and Spirit. And I submit that all the patriarchs, all the kings, all the prophets knew in some way and accurately, truly worshiped the one true God. So what I'm saying is that not that God has changed in the way that he's related to people. There is one church. That's what we confess in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one church. And that church includes all the saints of old before, before Jesus Christ was made manifest in the flesh. So, therefore, Judaism, what, which denies the Trinity, is not on the same footing. Likewise, Islam's false god named Allah is not a god at all, but rather is just a personification of a doctrine of demons. If you ever wish to study the, what, who, who Allah is and his characteristics, it looks nothing like the one true God. He's not loving, he's not gracious, he must be appeased, he must be... Uh, you know, kind of performed for. It's nothing at all like the triune God. He is not a loving God. He is no God at all. And therefore, there really isn't many monotheistic religions. There are, there are some religions which claim to only have one God, but they do not worship the one true God. And in no way should you allow your, either your thinking or your uh, witnessing with others to get into the point where you say, well, yeah, you, you know, you just need to be a monotheist. This is actually a great error in many apologetics uh, discourses where they're just arguing for monotheism. And I believe that's giving too much away and it's not at all classical Christianity. Uh, the next doctrine, which is a heresy that I want to talk about is, is modalism. And modalism is a very big word that just means 
uh, mode. God has different modes at different times. And what this heresy denies is that the Father, the Son, and the the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, co-deserving of majesty, but rather there's one God who looks like the Father at one point, and then another point in history comes as the Son, and then after that, the Son goes up to heaven and then sends the Spirit, and the Son changed into the Spirit. And uh, this is a heresy that is alive and well today. There's a group of of people who um, call themselves Oneness Pentecostals, and they believe in this doctrine quite clearly and defend it. Now, I'm not saying that if you subtly thought this, that you are a heretic condemned to hell or something like that, but it is a heresy if you maintain that this is the accurate view of God. Because Jesus Christ himself said, unless you believe that I am, you cannot be saved. You will die in your sins. So what Jesus is saying is, unless you believe that I, as the Son of God, am also equal with the Father, you cannot be saved. He also said that the only one who comes to the Father comes through the Son. And so if you deny that the Father exists at the same time that the Son exists, you don't even know who Christ is because you don't know him as the incarnate God. This doctrine throws its adherence into spiritual confusion, and it's absolutely uh, eternally tragic. Um, Modalism denies the authority of Scripture and by it the deity of Christ. Jesus cannot be the Son of God if there is no Son or Father from whom he has been begotten. And so this is really, this is dismantling Christianity. It's, It's an important doctrine, and we're going to talk about why in just a second. There's another doctrine which is even more subtle Modalism is kind of one of those ones that just you can throw it away on its face. It's easy to deny Jesus when he's being baptized, as, we, as I have here in the references. In Matthew 3, you see the Father speaking from heaven, the Son is still there, and the Spirit descends like a dove and remains upon Christ's shoulder. Um, and, and so it's easy to, to deny modalism, but a doctrine that's more subtle than that is a doctrine called subordinationism, And that's a very big word, and it just simply means that the Spirit or the Son, or most of the time both, are subordinate in glory and majesty to the Father. And the way that subordinationists get there is they say, well, the Father existed eternally, and the begetting of the Son cannot be an eternal begetting. That doesn't make sense, they would say. And then the Spirit's procession from the Father and the Son cannot be defended because that took place after the begetting. And what I would say to that is that that is simply a denial of God's being, and it's confusing his role in history and how we understand him with his essence and person. And this is actually a very important doctrine, although it seems subtle at first. Those who adhere to subordinationism, that is, they say the Son does not have equal glory with the Father, and the Spirit does not have equal glory with the Son and the Father, begin to have things ripple throughout their lives. This is why there's such a backlash against godly submission in the home, because they feel like people who, had, people who rally against that doctrine or that practice in life, they basically defend it saying, well, God is you know, Father, Son, Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, all with the same majesty. But they deny the fact that he has different roles in his persons and, and in the way that he has saved mankind. So essentially, they believe that the Father is more God, right? He's, because he begat the Son, he's more God than the Son is. And this is a heresy. This is false religion. This is, this is false faith. The eternal begetting of the Son and the procession of the Spirit, which is also eternal, in no way diminish the Son or the Spirit. In no way do they diminish the Son or the Spirit. And so this eternal begetting is, is absolutely vital and important to understand. And it simply is this, that Paul says that the head of Christ is God. He says that. But in no way is Paul saying that, therefore, God is greater than Christ. And so what I was talking about with, with this idea of submission, uh, rallying against submission because of the deity of God or the nature of God, um, it's failing to understand that different roles do not create different uh, qualities or, or worths. And what I mean by that is you are not defined by your vocation. You are not defined by the fact that you were the child of your parents. You're not defined by any of that. You're defined by who God thinks you are. You're not defined by your 
uh, activity, but rather by your person or yourself. And really, that is God's decision. So essentially, sub subordinationism, although it seems like a subtle thing, it actually ripples throughout all of life, and it's important to defend, uh, to defend against it. So why is any of this important? Well, the only reason it's important is because it affects everything in life. Our view of the triune God begins, as I was saying earlier, begins to ripple throughout everything. How we think about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is really a way in which we see all of those things which he's made. And God himself has left fingerprints or marks of his artistic pattern on all of life, not just the created world, but existence itself, the nature of time, the nature of the physical world, the nature of laws and science and mathematics, everything, uh, everything is undulated with the doctrine of the Trinity. And throwing confusion into the God, Godhead or into uh, our understanding of who God is creates confusion everywhere. This is why the church warred so heavily against these heresies. It, I mean, it seems like, you know, Today, we would just think they're, they're kind of being mean, but this affects everything. If you get the Trinity wrong, you've lost Christianity. Now, by that, I am not saying that if you don't understand the Trinity well, you're not a Christian. It just means that you need to continue to keep learning. So, the reason it's important is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell eternally. This is why the eternal begetting and eternal procession is so important, because they dwell eternally in love, harmony, and fellowship. If the Father is greater than the Son because of his uh, filiation or, or giving life to the Son, then that means the Father, there was a time in which the Father was unloving because love needs an object. And this is why I say so strongly that Judaism and Islam do not worship a loving God because love needs an object and it can only be found in a triune God. Now, there are some who maintain that God is actually a bipartite God and not a tripartite God, um, but we're not going there today. That's, that's too much, too fast. As the first community, this, this community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who dwell eternally in love, in harmony, in fellowship, with perfect adoration for one another, with perfect self-sacrifice for one another, with perfect giving and perfect reception, as that community, it is the prototype or pattern for all community fellowship life among those who are his image bearers. God's community becomes our community. And in fact, it ripples through existence. But not only that, not only is it a prototype, but the gospel says that you've been invited into this. Now, you know, you don't, I'm not saying you become a fourth part of the Trinity, that's not at all what we're going to teach today. And as we'll, as we'll get there, you'll see that that's not at all what's implied. But because you've been granted access through the Son to know the Father and the Spirit. And this understanding that not only is the Trinity beautiful, glorious, filled with love, a pattern of fellowship and community, but now by God's grace through the, your, your adoption, reconciliation, and sanctification, you've been made a partaker of the divine nature. And God's love begins to ripple into your life and you become loving as he's loving. So though we are at enmity or we were at war with God at first, he has now brought us to the point where he sanctified us, created us anew, and now we have fellowship with him. This is why I say it's important when you're preaching the gospel to not simply say, repent and be spared from hell, but rather you don't know why you're made. You were made to know the triune eternal God who made you in his image so that you could know him. And this is really the essence of the mission of Christ. One of the things that I always uh, am careful about, especially with the Reformed doctrine, we focus so much on the atonement. And I believe that the atonement is something you need to study. But what's interesting to me is in the high priestly prayer and in John 17, he says to the Father in his prayer, and it's recorded as scripture and never denied or debated or colored in any way, I have completed the mission with which you gave me. As in Jesus, before he goes to the cross, in his prayer to the Father, as he's getting ready for the cross, says, I brought you into their lives. I brought them to understand who you are. I revealed the Father. 
That's really the mission of Christ. It's to make an atonement so that we could know him, but it's also to demonstrate and to bring us into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's why when Jesus gives the command in Matthew 28 to go into all the world, which we call the Great Commission, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We think baptize them in water and say those words when you're baptizing them. No, he means surround these nations with the life of God. Bring them into the name. It means bring them into the lifestyle, the character, into a culture in which the Father's love is exemplified. It's, it's a much more holistic view of Christianity than simply dunking while saying that formula. So Christ's view of the disciples, how, do, how does this apply to Christ's mission? Well, it applies because the Father sent the Son to redeem sinners, to wash them, sanctify them, and create a place for the temple to dwell, or for the Spirit to dwell in a temple. Jesus promises to send the Spirit in, in this passage in John And he promises to send the Spirit to people who, as we're going to see, are less than perfect. Jesus says that the Spirit who hears things from the Father and the Son will then declare them to the disciples. We're already beginning to see this rippling of the life of God, the conversation of God, what the Spirit hears, he will then utter and declare to the disciples. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The spirit brings these disciples into the life of God, and then from there begins to shape and transform them. And the spirit's unique work, which is not the work of Christ after his ascension, is to continue to mature the disciples. We glorify the Spirit when we recognize his mission and authority. I hear some very strange things said in modern neo-Calvinist churches. A few of them I've heard, I've heard say, it's all about Jesus. And I, when I hear that kind of thing, I say, well, yes, it is. it's not about me. It's definitely about Jesus. But we do not dishonor the Holy Spirit. We do not say that, well, it's all about Jesus and we don't talk about the Spirit. We just say, oh, this is what Jesus is doing in my life. Yes, it's true Jesus is doing these things in, in my life, but it's by the Holy Spirit. If you ever hear someone who says, I saw Jesus last night, and they begin to then say, he was standing in my living room right next to me, I'd be a little cautious about that. I believe you may have seen Jesus by the Spirit, but Jesus is residing in heaven. He's waiting in heaven until all things have been put under his feet, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. That's why Jesus himself said, if, if people go and say to you that here he's out in the fields or here he's out in the meeting places, don't go out. I, th- we're getting far afield, but if you ever want to see some of the, the crazy antichrist uh, people who are on the earth today, I mean, there's a guy in the Philippines who calls himself the son of God. He calls himself Jesus Christ reincarnate. And the point being that I think if you say things like it's all about Jesus, I'm not against saying that. It's not like you got to go beat people over the head like, oh, you said something wrong. It's that we also need to recognize, yes, it is all about Jesus. Glory goes to the Son. But at the same time, the Spirit is vitally active in our lives. And it's vitally active in a way that the Son is not active. Though all of the disciples were going to abandon him right after this, Christ knows that his grace will be effective. This is amazing to me. Jesus Christ is giving the mission to people who are about to leave him. John 16 comes before the Garden of Gethsemane. After the Garden of Gethsemane, after Christ is is arrested, all the disciples run. Hear this deeply, brothers and sisters. When you sin and you begin to think, I cannot be used by God, you are denying Christ's heart for you. You are denying God's love for you. Christ says, the Spirit will declare to you all things. He will bring you into the truth. And my opinion is, when confronted by such an example of extreme grace, of confident grace, where the the Son of God, who never sins, and is the greatest prophet of all, when he says that the disciples will carry out the mission, and that the Spirit will come, and will bring them to him, and will mature them, I believe that we should take this example as applying to us. And we should deny, and reject, and throw off, and cast off 
all enemy, uh, all doctrines of the enemy, which would cause us to think that we are less than or that we cannot be used by the Father or that because I sinned yesterday, I can't draw near to God's presence. Those are lies from the enemy and they deny the fact that the Spirit of God, the triune God, is operating in your life. The Spirit will not fail. Paul develops this exact same doctrine and he says it's actually the hope which uh, which creates perseverance in these in, in Christians. He's talking about the Roman church here, but he's not talking about just uh, the Roman church he's including himself in. He's actually describing all Christians. It, though it was a letter written to the church at Rome at the time, it applies to us. And, and Paul says that you should think logically about the fact that God has saved you through the Son and sent the Spirit as shaping your destiny or where this is all going. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not a member of the Trinity. You have no authority to commune with the Father except through the Son. The Son of God came to make a way for you to know the Father. Jesus Christ himself said, no one comes to, th to the Father except through the Son. And so what we're beginning to see is this special role that Jesus has, that the Father has given to him, that the Father loves and delights in, is to create a means of access by which those who have been washed by his blood may now enter in and fellowship with him. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That through is so important. Yes, it's all about Jesus, but it's about getting to the Father. This is why I try to pray to the Father through the name of Christ, because I see the pattern over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus came and said, I came to show you the Father. The, the writers of the epistles say, this is the Father from which every family derives its name. He's the source and origin of all life. Verse two, through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Jesus Christ's continuing mediation for you causes you to persevere in the faith. That is what Romans 5 says. Now, why I want to impress upon you that that is a great and wonderful doctrine is if you are ever honest with yourself, you fail all the time. I fail all the time. And if I should ever begin to put my hope in my future standing with God at the end of my life, when I'm either on my deathbed or maybe I don't even get that experience and I'm just taken out. If I begin to live day to day wondering, can I really know that I'm reconciled with God? Then I will have a disastrous, depression-filled existence. You are being kept in the love of God because of the activity of the, of the Holy Spirit, which is communing to you the victorious working of the Son of God who is currently actively interceding for you and causing you to be persevered. Jesus says, of those who the Father gives me, I lose none of them. Jesus bats a thousand. He's better than Steph Curry. <laughs> Have you ever seen Steph Curry? I, just for the first few days uh, last week, like I didn't know who Steph Curry was, and then somebody showed me a video where he went like, he shot like 35 three-pointers in a row during practice or something. It was amazing. It was awe-inspiring. I, like, I don't even like basketball. <laughs> but, but what I, I, I want to say to you, when Jesus says, I lose none that the Father gives to me, when I hear that, I, I mean, all fear is gone, all, all expectations gone, all performance to so, somehow earn the love of the Father, it's gone. It's killed because what it's saying is, Jesus is saying, I'm keeping you here. Paul sees this as the triune God opening up a means of love and fellowship to these who were dead in sin and have now been washed. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through the Son. and We've also obtained a standing through the Son. And therefore, because of that, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As in our continual worship and love and taking joy in and rejoicing in God is done because there is a mediator who never fails. I said this already. My peace with God is not the product of a righteousness of my own, but comes to me through the faith of Jesus. It's not simply faith in Jesus, but it's also the faith of Jesus. That is Jesus' perfect trust in the Father, his perfect faith in the Father, which caused him to be obedient to the point of death. 
and therefore be for us, as the book of Hebrews says, a fitting sacrifice for his brothers and sisters. Though I was a stranger to God, Christ's righteous sacrifice opened up a new and everlasting means of approach. This is what the book of Hebrews says, that Christ, after having made atonement for for all, sat down. And that sitting down or that session, that, that session of Christ becomes an intercession for us. Likewise, also Hebrews goes on to re-say in chapter 10 that uh, the Son uh, has sanctified for all time or has uh, washed for all time those who are being sanctified. It's actually one of my favorite verses in all of Hebrews because it describes so clearly what's gone on. Uh, If I can get there real quick, Hebrews 10, I believe it's verse 14. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a glorious doctrine. I don't have to produce my sanctification. I participate with it. I agree with it. I want it even strong. Believe me, if I could accelerate it, I'd be all about it. But I am being sanctified. Okay. Because of Christ's sanctifying sacrifice, we who were defiled have now become put together as living stones, First Peter says, living stones being built up together to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's correct. Yes and amen. Peter says that we together are being built up as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes and amen. It is both and. It's not either or. You cannot just think, oh, well, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. I have no need of the church. I have no need of the body. You are being built together to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, therefore, has become for us an eternal resource, an inexhaustible resource, an unrelenting, unending resource in the midst of strife and strugglings. Not only that, verse 3, Paul's writing in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Why does hope not put us to shame? Because the love of God, that is the love that God has in himself, among the members of the Trinity, has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You have been invited into the very eternal love of God by the Holy Spirit because you've been washed and sanctified. And if you do not know what I mean by the love of God, or what Paul means, by the love of God being poured out into your heart, I want to talk to you later today after, after service. I want to pray with you. As, as was mentioned in Sunday school, these are not just ideas. When Paul's saying that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts, it's so clear that he's talking about a reality which has happened for these Roman Christians, these Christians in the city of Rome. He, he's, he's describing something that has transpired and that has been done by the Spirit. And this is why it's so important should we deny the doctrine of the Trinity because if we deny that the Spirit is even existing, then he can't be doing this. The Holy Spirit applies the love of God which was demonstrated in the cross. The Father had loved and called forth all those who he would save. He commissioned the Son to make an atonement and also allowed the Son to request of him to send the Spirit to those who would be uh, children of, essentially, the Father. And this is a glorious and wonderful doctrine. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, Verse 8, but God, loves his, uh, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's argument is this, that if we, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, right? If, if, if while we were haters of God, God sent his son to atone for us, then how much more will he give us everything? And, and by everything, I mean everything we need, everything that we need, which is namely to know him. And then, of course, all the other things we need. He's, he's made a way for us to have righteousness and peace with him. And, and essentially, this idea is that without an understanding of the Trinity, you cannot begin to dwell on, meditate, feed on, and enrich yourself with a knowledge that I'm, I've not only been adopted by the Father, I've been sanctified and atoned for by the Son, and the Spirit himself is not only indwelling me, but also sanctifying me, and he's created a home in me in which 
what, what Jesus promised would now come true, that those who do the commandments of my father, it is I who will, will make myself manifest to him and I will come to dwell with him and my father will dwell with him. By the spirit of God, I've not only been invited into knowing the Trinity, knowing the father and the son, but because of the teachings of Christ, I also understand that because of the Holy Spirit, God has now begun to indwell my life and indwell my heart. Verse 9, since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. How do you know that at the end of your life you will not face condemnation because it is already broken into now? Eternal life is now making its, uh, itself known in time. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through, again, there's that language, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have been received, through whom we now have received reconciliation. It's so important, brothers and sisters, that you defend your heart and mind against false ideas about who God is in his in his triune existence, it's not just to pass a test. It really is and should be for you a source of joy, something that you feed on, something that enriches and enlivens your, your heart. It's something that should cause you to come alive. It, it, should, it should allow you to dwell and meditate on the nature of God because this is the one who you were made for. You were made as an image bearer, not simply to show forth God to the world, but you were made an image bearer so that you could receive his love and to know him. And in fact, that I believe is actually the stronger reason. If you had to pick one or two reasons, do you, are you an image bearer so that you can show forth what God looks like? Or are you an image bearer so that you would have the capacity to know him? I believe that's the much more important understanding. You were made so that you could know God. God gave you the ability to know him. Christ has opened up for us this way to know God. Likewise, the Spirit has come to dwell within us, pouring out the love of the Father and the Son. And just as God had this love within himself eternally, he will also keep us in that love eternally. That's why it's so important to understand the eternal begetting and the eternal procession of the Spirit. This is really what we celebrate when we celebrate Trinity Sunday. We've been invited into something much greater than simply forgiveness of sins. We now know the uncreated one. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would revive within us a desire to know you. We pray that you would cause the Holy Spirit to rejoice within us, that you would cause those things to come to pass, which Paul has said in his letters are true, of, that by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. I pray, Father, that, that any Christians here today who are lacking in assurance, that that would be a reality for them, that the Holy Spirit would confirm within their spirit that they are children of God, and if children, then heirs, not, not forsaken. God, I pray that you would give to us a knowledge of these things that becomes a source of joy in our hearts, that we would feed on them, that they would strengthen us. And Lord, I also ask that you would uh, guard us from having heads that are puffed up and hearts that are shriveled. Lord, I pray that you cause both to take place, that we would have true knowledge and it would be heart knowledge and head knowledge, not one nor the other. God, I pray that you would give to us a, um, a, a lifestyle of meditating upon you, that, that it would be a great joy to anticipate and, and think about and meditate and even daydream about who you are and, and that we would continually look at your scriptures and be given even more understanding day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.